All right, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 is where we're going to get tonight. Hopefully, Lord willing, time-wise, we will get through verses 1 through 5. But since we're starting off our study of the book of Galatians, I want to do a little bit of a basic introduction of this book. Now, for those of you that haven't been a part of the studies that I've uh, um, been doing, uh, when I do an introduction, I don't do a detailed, detailed, detailed introduction. Nowadays, with all the resources that we have available with commentaries and study Bibles and things that are available on the Internet, if you want a detailed, detailed introduction or study of a book, that's all available to you. I'm going to give you a basic overview that will give us what we need to launch us into where we need to go. And so in order uh, to do this, we need to take a look at the, the who's, the what's, the when's, the where's, and the why's, if you will, and that kind of a thing. And so we, we're going to begin that way. So the who, the who of the book of Galatians, who wrote the book of Galatians? Well, this one's pretty clear, folks. Uh, look at Galatians chapter 1. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle. <clears throat> who wrote it? Paul did. As you know, God breathed it, but it's through Paul's hand. All right. Now, it, interestingly enough, as you will see in time, this is also the first letter that we have that Paul wrote to any of the churches that we have recorded. And so this is the very first one. And uh, who was it written to? Galatians chapter 1, verse 2 tells us to all the brothers, uh, sorry, and all, the, and all the brothers who are with me. And then he says to the churches of Galatia. Now, this is where that if you really want to wrestle with some introductory stuff, there's a lot of stuff out there. There's the Northern Galatian theory and the Southern Galatian theory and the wrestling match as to who it was that he was actually writing to because there are different areas called Galatia. There's the, those who populated that area back in the such and such BC who moved into that area. And then there's also the kind that were in the Roman province. And I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version here. I believe, though, from my study that he, when he's writing to the churches in Galatia, he's writing to the churches in the southern part of that area, which were the ones that he had been used of God to start when he went on his first missionary journey with um, Barnabas. Now, we're actually going to take some time in our introduction and stop, and we're going to go back and look at that introduction or what we're looking at, who he was writing to, from Acts 13 and Acts 14. So go ahead, put a bookmark in Galatians, and let's just take a little bit of time to look at Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14. The actual area um, of these two chapters that covers the churches that are going to be dealt with, or the letter was written to, you're going to find in chapter 13, verse 14 through 14:23. But I want to read to you, and I want you to kind of slowly go through this with me, I want to read to you chapter 13 and chapter 14 of uh, the book of Acts because this will help you get a real clear picture of not only where he was and who he spoke to and what, where the churches were started, but you're also going to see what he had to deal with in each of the areas, and it's going to make a whole lot more sense when we get to the introductory part of why was he writing it, what was he dealing with. All right, so in Acts chapter 13, look at verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch, Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. That's John Mark, by the way. When they had gone 
through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked and straight and crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist dark and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Again, that's when John Mark leaves Barnabas and uh, Paul, and as you'll see later on, uh, Paul and Barnabas have a good little spat about it in Acts 15. But now starting in verse 14 is when you start to see them go into the area of Galatia. All right. And some of these cities that I'm going to list for you here are the, I believe, the churches that he was writing to. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Remember, they left Antioch, which is in the area of Syria. All right. And so now they go on a journey. They go on an island. And then from there, they head north and they head into Galatia and they go into Pisidian Antioch. All right. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, the, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. 
And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this is fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. Excuse me, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that will, you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. After that meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. That's another one of the cities in Galatia, which I believe the letters were written to, the book of Galatians was written to. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done in their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra, here's another city, and Derbe cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the uh, entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. 
But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in the, their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews, here we see it again, came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And then when they had spoken the word to, in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Now, <clears throat> I read this for a reason. It gives you an idea of what happened in Paul and Barnabas' life. They're in the church in Antioch. <clears throat> By the way, a very interesting little trivia there. That was the first place and the first time that um, disciples or, uh, or believers were called Christians. Actually says that in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, that they were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, well, they're in there in Antioch. They were, they were part of the elders in that church. Prophets and teachers, we saw at the beginning of Acts 13, you had Barnabas and Saul, and, and uh, we know him as Paul, and the others that they were listed. But the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Paul for the work I've appointed for them. And they laid hands on them, and they went on that first missionary journey. They left where they were in Antioch, right up north of Syria, and <clears throat> they went to an island. And then from there, they went up into the area of what we know as Galatia, or it's in this area of southern Turkey nowadays, all right, in south, south, southern Asia. And in those cities, we saw them listed. What were they? Remember? remember? They went where first? All right, the Pisidian Antioch. And then they went to Iconium. And then they went to Lystra and Derby. And then they went back through those same towns and reversed their route, made, appointed elders in each of the churches, and then made their way back to the church where they had started, and they told everybody what had happened. But who followed them wherever they went, causing trouble for them? The Jews. You're going to see that that's very important when we get into our study of the book of Galatians. Because Paul writes this book to the churches in Galatia, and he's having to deal with the fact that not only did the Jews go in while they were there and stir up trouble for them, and even stone him and leave him for dead in one place, after they left, you're going to see they went back into those churches. Jewish people who claimed to be Christians... And they started adding to the teaching of Paul and saying, well, he only told you part of the story. Here's the rest. And they started adding legalistic rules. And one of the main ones being that you could be saved as a Gentile, but you had to first become a Jew and follow Jewish rules and you had to be circumcised. And so Paul is writing this book. We'll go back to Galatians now. He's writing to the churches in Galatia 
He's writing to the people that he had already come to know and meet and love. And he's, but unfortunately, having to deal with, as you're about to see, that they had fallen prey to some false teachers who were Jewish people who claimed to be believers who were adding to the gospel. And Paul sees this as a serious, serious issue. All right. So um, before we get into a little bit more about that, let's deal with the question of when. When did Paul write this letter? Most likely anytime right around A.D. 49. All right. Now, the reason we know this is the Jerusalem Council, which you're gonna, we're going to get to later in our study, not tonight, happens in Acts chapter 15, and we know that happens around A.D. 49. And so um, what happens there is Paul actually references what happens in that Jerusalem Council in Galatians chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 through 10. We will get to that later on, so we're not going to even take the time to read it. But since Paul references something that happened in A.D. 49, we know that he wrote this letter most likely right around or after A.D. 49. All right? Now, that also, by the way, that date also is tied to that northern kingdom, southern kingdom stuff, if you want to get into all that. But since I believe he was writing to the southern kingdom of Galatia and those churches that he dealt with, that's why I believe in the early date. All right. Now, as we saw, there were Jews who opposed Paul's message of salvation, and they followed wherever he went to cause trouble for him and to try to stop his message. In a similar way, some Jewish quote-unquote believers had gone behind Paul to these Galatian churches and were teaching them that Gentiles could be saved, but they had to become Jews first and then follow Jewish laws, especially circumcision. Go with me to Galatians chapter 1. Look at verses 6 through 9, and this kind of help you see what he's dealing with. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. All right. So here he says, someone's come in after me and they're teaching you a different gospel. Actually, it's not a gospel at all. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Look at verses 7 through 12. Now, you're going to see how serious this is to Paul when you read these verses. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. He says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For those of you who don't know what he means, he says, instead of just cutting off the tip, why don't they cut the whole thing off? <laughs> That's what he says. They're so proud of their circumcision, it is doing such damage by them saying that you have to follow these certain rules too, or else you're not really saved. Folks, as you know, we don't really deal with that circumcision issue here in the church today. But I want to tell you that legalism has cropped its head up all throughout the history of the church. 
And we need to be, make sure that we know what the truth of the gospel is in and of itself. We're going to be taking a look at what is the gospel in its pure, simple, honest form. And in doing so, we'll then be able to recognize if anything has been added. And you're going to see in this study, by the way. And there's no accident why we're doing this. Not only were they mixing illegalism with grace, they'd also spread questions about Paul's apostleship. But we're going to deal more with that in our study as well. But as you'll see, Paul is very, very concerned about this, how serious this threat is to the churches. You see, usually Paul will begin his letters with a commendation and then get to a needed correction. But in this letter, he goes straight to the issue at hand and deals with it head on throughout the whole book. Paul doesn't do any real pleasantries. He does the typical greeting. And then look at verse 6. I'm astonished that you're so... He doesn't even deal with, hey, you're doing pretty good. Can I talk to you about some things? He goes straight to the problem. So now, I want to just read how I've written this down because I really I want you to hear what I'm saying. I want you to understand why I think God led us to do this study. As you know, when we finished our last study of 2 Peter uh, and we took our break there for the month of August, I told you I was going to be praying about what God would have us do. And as I wrestled and prayed and said, Lord, please just show me where you want us to go. He clearly made known to me not only that we're to be looking at Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians, but there's a specific reason as to why. It says, as you know, we'll be studying Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians right in a row over the next months. My desire in doing so is that we too would be set free from legalistic teaching that has crept into our churches over the years. Any study of church history will show a continual struggle against different forms of legalism that keeps showing up in our midst, and we too must be vigilant in our day. With this in mind, it will do us well to study these letters to see what freedom in Christ and living in grace really looks like. For I believe we will see that much of what we have been taught leans more to the side of man's effort than the Spirit's power. So let us come to these letters with open hearts, ready to hear and receive what God has for us in these months to come if He tarries. You understand my heart where we're going to be coming from? I, I want you to come in not with your preconceived notion. I don't want you to come in with your years, years of church... I'm just going to say it. Your years of churchianity... The good news is we're all from a bunch of different churches, and that's a wonderful thing because we're not here to talk about our church. We're here to look at what the Bible says and talk about Jesus and encourage each other in the Lord as followers of Jesus Christ. Amen. With that in mind, though, I want you to please come in and say, Lord, I want you to teach me the gospel like it's new. Tell me what the gospel is like it's fresh. And I believe if you're willing to, myself included, as I do this study and as I prepare to teach, I'm starting to realize there's a lot of stuff that we have just assumed was what every Christian was supposed to be and how he's supposed to do that I've come to realize has been added to the pure, unadulterated gospel over the years. And folks, let me tell you, as I've begun to taste what it means to really be in Christ, freedom feels great. But one of the hardest problems is there will be plenty in the church who will even come and try to put you back under a yoke of some kind of slavery. It may not be circumcision that we're wrestling with anymore. Hopefully, that you don't have anybody saying you need to be circumcised. Actually, I wish I could tell you that that was, was totally gone. It's not. There's actually a very strong movement, even in this area of our, of our county, of those who think that Christians need to follow the Mosaic Law. Oh, it's, it's a big movement. And you'll run into those people in churches around the area. So I'm just going to tell you, that kind of teaching is still out there as well. But there's a lot of others as well. 
and even some of the folks from your own denomination have unintentionally heaped onto you extra rules that actually aren't what the gospel says. And so we're going to learn what does it mean to be free in Christ? What does it mean to live in, under grace and not under law? All right? Now, so let's start looking at Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. That was your brief intro, by the way. I could have spent two or three weeks on the intro, so be glad you only got a half hour. All right. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave him up for our sins, gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul states at the beginning of this greeting that he's an apostle, which is really not that big of a deal in one sense because he does that in all of his letters. He states his authority that he has. But if you look closely at this one, you'll notice that this one's a little bit different. He says that he's an apostle, but he makes clear that his apostleship was appointed by who? God, not by man. Because as, you, as we touched on in the, in the brief introduction, not only were these Jewish believers coming in behind him, and I say believers in quote quotations, and we're not sure if they really were or not, not only were they coming in behind him and distorting what Paul had taught and adding to what Paul had taught, they were also saying, we're not even sure that guy Paul was really an apostle and had the authority to do what he said he had the authority to say. And they were questioning now his apostleship. And so he starts this letter off to the churches that he had already dealt with and said, I'm an apostle. And let me tell you, I'm not an apostle appointed by man, but I have been appointed by God. Now, I want to so bad take some time right now and read to you verses 11 through the end of chapter 1, but I'm going to wait until we get there because I'm going to break it down on that. But in that section, he then reiterates his story. He talks about how he came to know Jesus, how he was taught by Jesus face to face in the desert of Arabia for three years, how he didn't even consult with any of the so-called leaders in the church for 14 years. And then at a certain point, he went up and met with them. And, and so I want, you, we'll get to that when we get to that section of our study. But he spends most of chapter 1 dealing with the issue and starting off as saying, I'm shocked that you guys have already gone to a different gospel, which isn't even a gospel. And on top of that, let me just remind you, God called me. And if you fall and pray to some lie that I'm not from God, let me remind you of my story. And that's what he does in that section. You know what? I'm going to do it anyway. Go to verse 11. <laughs> we'll study this in more detail and we'll, we'll, we'll parallel what he says here when we get to this section. We'll parallel it with the book of Acts and his account there as well. Actually, there's a couple accounts of his salvation story. But look at verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers. Isn't that interesting how he words it? Yeah. Well, I'll have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers, 
But when he who had sent me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Cephas, by the way, is Peter. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only were hearing it said that he who used to persecute us now, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and that glor they glorified God because of me. And then he talks about 14 years. Then later he went up, and we'll get to all that when he deals with Jerusalem Council and all that. But do you understand what Paul's doing here? He is starting off this letter by saying, folks, let me just tell you, this isn't going to be friendly. But it's necessary, and I'm going to shoot straight with you. I'm an apostle sent by God, not man. You know, thank God for the fact that every one of us, unless I don't know your story correctly, we've heard the gospel, but a man shared it with us. Now, God's Spirit is the one who opened our eyes, and God's the one who draws us, and it's God who gets the glory for our salvation, but He used men in our lives, correct? Yes. Paul's situation was different, and women. Paul's situation was different. Remember, Paul was on the road to Damascus going to kill Christians and have them put in prison. And who came and got Paul all by himself? Jesus. And we'll get to that when we get to this section of the study. It's an amazing, awesome story. So much so that the people that were with Paul, they knew something was going on, but they didn't even really know what was going on. He was talking to Paul. And then Jesus taught him face to face. So he starts off and just says simply, I'm an apostle and not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, the word apostle, by the way, means sent one or one sent. But Paul's apostleship carried with it an authority in churches. Now, unfortunately, because of the work of these false brothers in the churches, the churches in Galatia were now questioning his apostleship. Now, I personally believe that God still uses apostles. Now, I don't believe that God uses capital A apostles anymore, where the marks of the Bible says the marks and the signs of an apostle were the fact that they could do the signs and the wonders and the miracles, and they had been taught by Jesus face to face. And that's why Paul could be one of those kind of apostles, because he had seen the Lord. You remember back in Acts chapter 1, when they were in the upper room, and this is after Jesus' ascension, and they realized from Scripture that they have to replace Judas, because he committed suicide, and, and he never really was one of them. He had pretended to be, but it came, became evident in the end that he wasn't. And they said, the Scripture says we have to replace him. So let's choose from among us. Someone who has been with us from the whole time, from his baptism all the way until his ascension. In other words, they had to have seen the risen Christ. Paul fits the mark of an apostle in this way, capital A, because he had been around at that time and he also had seen the risen Christ. Now, I had one preacher tell me one time that the, the reason that Paul was the, supposed to be the 12th apostle all along, but those guys in the upper room got in a hurry and Matthias never should have been picked. And I said, you're speculating, because look closely. They prayed a specific prayer there in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 and following. Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show us whom you've chosen. And the Bible says they cast Lot, and the Lot fell to Matthias. And they go, well, that shows you that they shouldn't have done it. They were gambling about it, you know. And, all and we got to be real careful about reading our preconceived notions into it. Scripture is very clear that they, they had chosen the one that God had pointed out in that time. But later on, 
He also chose Paul to be an apostle. Actually, if you do a study, you'll find that later on, Paul actually says that Barnabas is an apostle. When he starts talking, defending himself in the Corinthian church, he said, aren't uh, we apostles allowed, or he talks about Barnabas, allowed to have a wife. And he called Barnabas an apostle. I think God still uses apostles. He gave some, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastors and teachers, some to be uh, evangelists for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Remember, there are those that God still uses in a sent type of ministry to equip the church. And in a small sense, that's kind of what I do now. I think I've got a mixture of apostle prophet calling on my life. Now, I'm never going to put it on my business card because it'll freak, <laughs> it'll freak people out. Jim thinks he's an apostle now. There's so much confusion, so confusion about that term that I, I don't want to have you misunderstand me. But God uses me to equip the church, but he sends me to go equip the church. And I love my traveling life. I never get tired of it. My wife will tell you, the days right before it's time for me to fly again, I get giddy like it's Christmas. I get silly. I start causing trouble in the house, and she'll say, you're excited about going on another trip. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can't wait. It, it, I love what he's got me doing. I really do. You offered me a church where they'd give me no trouble, and I'd be there for 30 years? Please, no. It sounds like jail. I have been wired by God to be on the move and to equip the church with the gifts that he's given me. Paul's apostleship, though, was different. He not only was sent, he had been given an authority. I'll be honest with you, sometimes I wish I had that kind of authority, but maybe I don't want the trouble that comes with it as well. But Paul had an authority, and with that authority, he is now writing to those churches that he was used of God to start, and he's dealing with some serious, serious issues. Now, at the same time, there's a second issue that Paul's going to deal with in this letter that is also dealt with in his greeting here. You may not realize this is just verses 1 through 5. is just simply the greeting, which is a very typical way that they wrote letters back then. Usually we will write our, hey, dear so-and-so, and at the end we'll sign our name. But what they used to do was sign their name first and then say who they were writing to, give a greeting, and then they'd get into the body of the letter. In his greeting, he's dealing with two issues. One, the questioning of his apostleship, which he'll deal with in this book. And the second thing he's dealing with is this. As Paul gives the customary blessing to his readers in his greeting, he describes Jesus in a very specific way. He describes him as he who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Did you hear how he worded it? He describes Jesus as he who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Note how he says that the work of dealing with our sins and delivering us has all been done by Jesus through the sacrifice of himself. Did you catch that? He made it very clear that it has been all, been, all been done by him already. The saving you and the delivering you from your sins has been accomplished at the cross. And it's been all done by Jesus. We don't need to add anything to what he's done. Nor should we. He didn't describe Jesus in this way by accident because you'll see him reiterate this truth throughout the letter. I'm going to pull out four areas that he's done that. I'm just going to pull out from the book of Galatians four areas that he's done that. Go with me to Galatians 2. Look at verses 20 and 21. Again, very familiar passage. Please try to let God help you see it with fresh eyes here. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. By the way, let me just stop you. How often in our churches over the years have you heard people say, well, I'm still supposed to, or God expects me to. 
I ought to. Paul says, I don't live anymore. I no longer live. But Christ, who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. All right, we'll deal with that a lot more when we get to that section. Go to chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 6, and then verse 13. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Again, he reminds them, look, your salvation didn't come from anything you did. It was totally you hearing the message, believing it by faith, and God took it from there. The Christian life, folks, is supposed to continually be lived like that. Let me give you a, a fun little uh, tidbit from our life in our house. Uh, tonight, um, we were in the midst of craziness. It's been a wild and crazy day all the way around. I had the privilege of preaching at Men in Motion, and then I ran home and changed clothes and went and worked on the motorhome that someone's letting us borrow for our vacation at Fort Wilderness starting tomorrow. And, and uh, the batteries actually were really low on water and things were starting to overheat a little bit on this motorhome and kind of like to get that fixed before I get to Fort Wilderness. And uh, so I went and got some distilled water to put in the batteries and realized that they weren't only a little bit low, they needed two gallons of distilled water to uh, get them back to where they need to be. So praise God we caught it in time. Um, so I'm all sweaty now and, and I have to get home and get showered and get cleaned up and Nicole's back here from college as you can see and don't, I wish we could see her every Tuesday but it's probably not going to happen and I wish I could tell you she came because she wanted to be a part of dad's study. She came because her boyfriend here, Joe, was bowling at a, and he's on the high school bowling team and they happened to be playing over in our area so she could kill a couple of birds. Oh and by the way, daddy, while you're, I'm in town, could you get my oil changed? And all this was going on. And, and Joe and, and, and everybody was there at the bowling alley and I took her car and got, I watched for a little bit and then went and got her oil changed and we all met back at the house and Becky grabbed pizza at Little Caesars and I literally set the table with paper plates, a roll of paper towel, trying to impress the, the young man. And, and, uh, and we sat down at 6.10 to 6.15 and went whoa, 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 and we're out of the house at 6.34 to get here. But as we were leaving, I said to Nicole, hey, Nobody really knows Joe. Let's pretend he doesn't know the Lord and that he needs the Lord and see how people treat him. <laughs> Before I could even finish that, Elise turns to me and says, Dad, everybody needs the Lord, even if they're saved. And I thought, girl, you just summarized the book of Galatians. You still need Jesus to do anything and everything he asks for you to do. You still can't do it. You can't save yourself. You know that. But for some reason, we think we can add, put whatever you want in that blank. 
The message of the gospel is he not only saves you, he's the one that has to live the life through you. And anybody that says it's up to you, that's been added to the gospel. That's been added to the gospel. The gospel is believing what he has said and mixing it with faith and watching him do it through you. Go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. It makes a dad proud when you, his 16-year-old girl gets it spiritually. Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. All right? Again, and we're going to come back to this verse. Let me read it to you one more time. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision or obedience to certain rules we have to follow, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Go to Galatians 6. Look at verse 12 and then verses 14 and 15. He said it in verse 12, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Look at verses 14 and 15. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. As you can see from just these little tidbits, I cannot wait until we get into the meat of this book. But I want to deal with this one question as we wrap up tonight. Why is the cross considered an offense? Why does the world see the cross of Christ as offensive? Any idea? This is what I'm going to open up for discussion. Why is the cross considered an offense? Why does the world see the cross of Christ as offensive? Offensive or defense? Offensive. Because we think we have some control and we have none. That's definitely it. You see, at the cross, Jesus paid the full price for your sin. He paid it all. The only thing you bring to your salvation is sin. You don't bring anything else. You don't add to what Jesus has done. Jesus does it all. But what does our flesh want? Our flesh wants some credit. We want to be God. We, we want to be God. We want some glory. We want... I read my Bible today. I feel pretty good. You know what I'm talking about? We, we want to be patted on the back. For what we've done. The message of the cross is, it's all Him. And our flesh doesn't like that. The world doesn't like that. No, the world's message is, you get the glory. You get to be in charge. Obey your thirst. Have it your way. You deserve a break today. It's all about you. The cross says, I am a sinner and I am unworthy of salvation, yet God in his love and his mercy died and gave himself up so that I could receive salvation. He paid a price that I could never pay and that only he could pay. And when I say, yes, Jesus, I thank you for this gift, I get no credit. He gets all the credit and that's offensive. If you think back to these Jewish people 
whom Paul was preaching to the good news of salvation, he was saying, you don't get salvation by how good you've been. And what were they proud of? How good they'd been. Remember the Pharisee who prayed, oh God, I do this and I tithe and I do this. And you know what? How many of us have not had that same attitude as well? We might have a child get sick or we might have a situation go in a way we don't want. And we quickly tell God how good we've been. But God, I raised him in the church. God, I took him to Sunday school. God, I did these things. It must count for something. God says, you still don't understand the gospel. It's all me. And none you. Not just for salvation, but for your whole life. And folks, I have begun to experience the freedom in Christ when I've realized more and more that even in this ministry he's got me in, in my growth in my walk with him, whatever it is, being a better husband or a father, it's when I stop trying to do a better job and believe that God will do it through me and trust him that all of a sudden I experience God do things and bless in ways that I know ahead of time I didn't do it. Let me give you an example. Sunday I finished preaching at First Baptist Merritt Island on Sunday morning there in the morning service and and uh, if you're curious about that message just go to FB, w, uh, www.fbcmi First Baptist Church Merritt Island go to their website and you'll see my ugly mug on the front page there and just click there and you can listen to that message and it was on the fact that God gets to choose everything not just certain things and we got to stop telling everybody else how they ought to live their lives and that's up to God too but at the end of that message, after the invitation, after the service is over, as everybody's leaving, I was just down front talking to people. And this young man walks up to me, and he's in his 20s, and he looks Hispanic, and, and, and uh, he, he could tell he was uncomfortable, but he couldn't leave until he talked to me. But he didn't want to talk to me with other people around, so he kept pacing. And he finally, it's his turn, he comes up and he says, I need to know your name. I thought, that's interesting. They've been saying it all morning, but okay. <laughs> my name's Jim. What's yours? He says, my name is Ulysses. thought, that's interesting. Cool name. I go, my full name is Jim Johnson. What's yours? He goes, Ulysses Vargas. I said, uh, are you new here? He said, yeah. I said, well, let me just tell you what I was preaching about today. If there's a church that understands what I'm talking about, this is one. And you can come here and they won't make judgments about you. There'll be some people that do, but for the most part, they get it. And you can come here and this will be a good place for you. He said, well, I'm only here for two more weeks and then I head off to boot camp. And I said, well, where are you going? He said, Texas. I'm in the Air Force. I said, oh, cool. I said, well, since you're only going to be here two more weeks, can I ask you a quick question? Have you ever trusted Jesus as your Savior? And he stopped and he said, well... I grew up in, in the Roman Catholic Church, and he told his story, but it's obvious he'd never made a decision for Jesus. I said, look, what church we go to isn't really the issue. The issue is, have you ever trusted what Jesus did to cover your sins? And he said, no, I haven't. And I said, well, I'm going to pray that as you go off to boot camp, God will put people in your path that help you understand your need for Jesus. Well, I could tell that that wasn't satisfactory to this man. He was, God was on him. And I felt like God was saying, Jim, ask him if he wants to do it now. <laughs> so I then said, oh, is there any reason why you wouldn't do it now? He goes, no. It was almost like he was like, 
I've been waiting for you, preacher, to finally get there. I've been there for a half hour, but you're not there for My buddy Tony Kessinger said this, when God is at work in someone's life drawing them, you can quote the Gettysburg Address and they'll get saved. And it was one of those moments. So man, Ulysses go to the altar and we just kneel down and he trusts Christ as his savior. I quickly then realized we want to get some discipleship information so we can get plugged in with him and stay in contact with him while he's at boot camp. So I grab one of his other guys named Tommy, who's a decision counselor, and he takes him and he heads off. And a couple of minutes later, I look back and Tommy's there by himself. I said, what happened? He goes, I took him to one of my military buddies and I look over and he's with a Christian counselor who's retired military and the two of them are sitting there and God is doing work, Rob. And I am telling you, it was so awesome. And then I thought about it. I'm going to get rewarded in heaven for that. And I didn't do anything. I even kind of almost messed it up, but you can't. I would have just messed up my, my reward. But folks, I didn't do anything. God had done all that. And he just dropped him in my lap. The more you stop thinking it's up to you. Oh, I need to do a better job. You still don't understand the gospel. You need to believe that God will do it. That he will do what he said. Paul said, I no longer live. Christ now lives in me. The life I live now, I live by faith in Jesus. And he lives his life through me. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not the do's and the don'ts or how you wear your hair or how you wear your pants or anything like that. It's what it means to trust him and to walk with him. Why is the cross offensive? Because the flesh wants credit. That's why a lot of these movements of legalism have gained such a footing and why they have such big churches and big followings. Because you can measure what's done in the flesh. You can have banquets and award, awards for what's been done in the flesh. You can even give out plaques of how many baptisms have been accomplished in the flesh. And you can measure and pat each other on the back on how good they're doing if it's done in the flesh. But honestly, the Bible says the flesh counts for nothing before God. And everything that is done by Him is what's going to last. And guess what? He gets the credit. Go back to Galatians chapter 1 and look at verse 5. Look at how it reads again now. I must actually start in verse 4. He describes Jesus in this way, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Who gets the glory? God does. I want you to be free. I want you to live the joy of knowing what it means to let Jesus live his life through you. Oh, salvation is just the beginning, folks. And for most of us Christians, we know we're going to heaven. But if we ask, how are you doing? Well, I could do better. We still don't understand the gospel. And so my prayer is through our study of Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians that God will help us see what it really means to live the Christian life in the freedom of Christ. And I can't wait to get there, but we're going to have to wait till next week. So let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for this chance to come and to open your word. Thank you for the, the wealth of stuff. And Lord, as I was teaching tonight, I saw five different things that I wanted to pull out of verses one through five that we didn't have time to even get to. 
Lord, thank you for the wealth of stuff that's in your word. I pray, Lord, that many in this room and those that are listening online wouldn't say, man, I can't wait until Jim teaches next week. But Lord, that they would believe that you are able to help them see things in your word even between now and then. Lord, may we not come to our Bible study time as I need to read my Bible or I ought to read my Bible. May we come believing that you will speak to us. That you will, well, your word has been God-breathed and it's living and active. May we believe that you'll breathe on us still as we read. And may we believe that you'll speak to us. Lord, we thank you for preachers and teachers and those that have been given that gift. But Lord, may we understand that you're able to do this as well. And Lord, help us at your pace, without man trying to tell someone to hurry up, may we at your pace begin to see the full message of the gospel and what was accomplished at the cross. Not just salvation, but all that salvation entails. We look forward to this study and we thank you for tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.